This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Right, I think we are ready, everyone. Thank you for coming. Welcome to Crime Con. If this is your first one like me, I hope you're enjoying yourself, because I certainly am. This panel is about the July 2005 London bombings. It's coming up to the 18th anniversary of that tragic event. What's going to happen today? I'll introduce my panellists in a moment. We're going to discuss various aspects, not only on the 7-7 attacks, but also the 21-7 attempted attacks. We're going to go into that, Ray, especially with some great detail about the bomb and the makeup of it. Here's how it's going to go. We're going to do an overview of 7-7. Then we're going to do what these guys all saw, what their roles were, what they thought, how they interpreted it. The aftermath of that 7-7 attack. We'll go into the device makeup after that. And then we'll go into the 21-7 attempted London bombings and the device makeup, for example, as well. And we do have a video at the end, which is going to prove just how catastrophic 21-7 could have been had it been successful. I may as well introduce my distinguished panellists at this point. Immediately to my right is Ray Feisch, former specialist advisor on major crime in the Forensic Science Service. You want to say hello, Ray? Afternoon, all. <laughs> is it afternoon already? I'm thinking it's morning. Next to Ray, we have Stephen Keogh, former Scotland Yard detective inspector who was a DC on the Met Police's anti-terrorist branch at the time of 7-7. And at the end there, you may recognise... Yeah. Hello. Steve, you're normally, the, you're normally the first one in there. Sorry, mate. I'm so keen to introduce Dr Richard Shepherd on the end, who you may recognise, forensic pathologist, who we all know and love, who's just here for the laugh, aren't you, doctor? Hello. That was intense. <laughs> so let's start at the beginning then. July 7th, 2005. I'll quickly run through what kind of happened on that day, just to go over the story again once more. So on the morning of 7-7, Shazad Tanweer, Mohammed Sadiq Khan and Hasib Hussain travelled in a hire car from Leeds, that's my ends of the world. And they travelled to Luton, where they met Jermaine Lindsay, who travelled from Aylesbury. The four men took a train to London King's Cross, where they split up. And then at around 8.50 that morning, there were three simultaneous bomb attacks on the tubes in London. The first one, known as the essentially the Oldgate Station one, with Shazad Tanweer, killed eight people, injured 171. The second one we'll call Edgware Road. That was Mohammed Sadiq Khan, killed seven, injured 163. The third one, the southbound Piccadilly line, that was Jermaine Lindsay, killed 27, injured over 340. And then at 9.47, the number 30 bus travelling eastwards from Marble Arch, Hasib Hussain, another bomb went off killing 14, injuring over 110. It makes sense, Steve, to start with yourself on the morning of that attack. Do you want to just run us through your memories of that morning and what you were kind of doing in your role at the time? Yeah, so I was on the anti-terrorist branch, and so we had the responsibility for responding to any terrorist incidents. Um, and we worked on an on-call basis, so my team were on call. And we worked in a building, it, it would be relevant later, it weren't near the Oval. Um, we started at 8 o'clock and a couple of phone calls came in and said that there might have been some incidents on the underground. 
And we, we had a big telly in our office and we would normally, we were normally behind the news, so we'd have Sky News on and we, we would see what's going on in the world via that. But they started to get some, some um, reports of, I think it was power surges on the line or something. Um, but then we got the phone call saying, no, there's been a bomb. And there's another bomb, there's another bomb. And at one point, it looked like there were nine. Um, because you can imagine, you've got all different people ringing in, reporting different things, and it was, it was chaos, really. It was real chaos. So we, we were in South London. Um, so what we decided to do, would we, we would relocate closer until people could get an idea of exactly what's gone on and to get some, get some understanding of how many bombs have gone off, where have they gone off, etc. Uh, so we get, went to a, a police station not, not far from here, actually, City Road. Um, and then, and 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 then they and then they they got it down to three three tube stations, and and the bus. So my colleague and I, um, we made our way across London. It, blue lights, we had blue lights and sirens, but you could you could just not get through the traffic. London had come to a complete standstill, and we were sent to Edgware Road. So we we got there eventually. Um, we got through the police cordons, and it, it, the. One of the things that always stands out for me is the difference between the inside of the police cordon and the outside. London was absolute chaos. We got through the cordons. By the time we got there, all the, all the injured casualties had been taken away. So it, it was just left with firemen, policemen standing around. It was just absolute quiet inside this cordon. Um, and so there's, there's certain processes you need to go through. So our, our responsibility ultimately was to remove the people, the dead, the dead victims, and then treat that the, the whole of the train station, the, the track and the train as a crime scene. But that's not something we could do straight away because there were certain things we had to think of. Oh, it's there secondary devices. Um, if it was Islamic terrorism, are we talking about dirty bombs? The structure of the, 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 of the um, station itself had to be checked. So it was some time before we got down there. It would probably... Top of my head now, it was a long time. I think it was at least a, at least a day, it might have even been two days before we could get down and, and the first thing we did was then to start to bring out the dead bodies. Um, and we, we had seven. And it was actually quite a sad time, really, because it, it was chaos in London. And lots of people were injured. Lots of people were missing. People had loved ones that were in hospital and they didn't know, they, they didn't have an ID on them, etc. And very quickly, what we'd done is we set up a television system so that we could see into the track. We put cameras on each end of the, tra of, of the, of the train. And there was, there was one lady that had been blown out of the train and got hit by another train coming the other way. It was just a coincidence that there was two trains traveling together. And, and we could see her on the track. And, and we had a television in, in the little hut that we had on. And it was really quite sad because her dad was on um, with a photograph of this girl. And I, I, I can't find my daughter. And we could see her there. And it was really hard. Because we, could, we couldn't have said, your daughter's here, because that's not a formal identification. And if we were wrong, etc. But it was really quite hard seeing him looking for his daughter. And, and we knew where she was. Um, but then eventually what we could do, once we could go down, um, there were, we worked in pairs. There were four pairs, so there's eight of us. And, and, we, and we took it in turns to go down. And the first thing was to bring out the dead bodies. Um, went into the train. And, and, and it was weird because at the t no one, this was the first suicide bombing in the UK. So I got into the train and there was a hole in the floor, a hole on either wall and in the ceiling. And there was one person that was clearly more injured than anybody else. And we started to feel sorry for this person. It's like they really caught, really caught this bomb. Um, and that was before we realized that was the, that was the suicide bomber. And there was not much left of him. Um, 
and it was my job to go into the train and and get his remains into this was Mohammed Sadiq Khan into so all the other victims would be put into a, a body bag. He just went into a, a, a bag that we tied up and, and, and took away. Um, and then it was the job to treat the, 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 the uh, whole of the train and whole of the track as a crime scene. Um, so we've been trained to do this, but our training was very different. So we were trained to deal with Irish bombs. This was the first ter terrorist, um, Islamic terrorist attack in the UK. And we were really, we were making it up as we're going along, I'll be honest, because all our training was we'd blow up a car and then we'd have to go and um, treat the crime scene. This was on a train, a packed train at rush hour. So what we, what we presented with was completely different and we weren't prepared for it. Um, so there was a lot of learning as we went along. Um, and it, it was hard, I won't, I won't, I won't lie, it was, it was very similar weather to this. Um, and we were down there for two weeks and we didn't leave for two weeks. Um, and by the time we'd finished, every, the, the, you would never have known a bomb had gone up, apart from the holes in the, in, the, in the train. Everything had come out from the tracks, from the train and everything. And that was us on our hands and knees for two weeks, just taking out everything, everything we could find. Um, it, was, yeah, it was hard work, I, I, I won't deny that. Okay. And Ray, when did you first become aware of these attacks? And when you did become aware, how did you become involved in retrieving the forensic items, getting those tested, etc.? Um, I became aware of the attacks on the morning of 7-7. I was at Dartford Police Station dealing with a, an affray amongst two Asian groups. When uh, police and where we were holding this meeting was in fact the police bar at Dartford Police Station because it doubled up as a conference room. And police officers started coming through saying this bomb's gone off in, bomb's gone off in London. So again, there's a television there, that got put on, and we started getting the pictures through. Soon after that, um, my pager messenger went off, and it basically said, get back to the lab straight away. Um, so I went back to the lab, um, obviously trying to get some news, so I went up there. Um, once I got up to the lab, it was then that I had to put together a major crime team of scientists to be able to deal with the influx of uh, exhibits to come in. I was, at the time, a specialist advisor with major crime, which had two roles. One was to liaise with the forensic management team of SO15, or SO13 as it was then, um, and to give them advice on forensic, the use of forensic science. And secondly, was run a team of forensic scientists, about 100 scientists, to deliver that sort of forensic science. And that's what we sort of set up straight away. It's right, as soon as stuff is ready, get it in, we will get it examined straight away. Results will be going back to you. So that was my immediate priority. What was that process like for the workers? Because having to do such a rapid turnaround isn't something that was necessarily the norm back then. So yeah. how hard was that adjustment the for the guys working it? Yeah, the normal way of, of which forensic science went on in those days is very seemed very much as a nine to five, Monday to Friday sort of operation. We wanted to change that, I wanted to change that into when um, something like this went on or a major or a murder, high profile murder, that we would work like the police do 
sort of all hours, 24-7, basically to break the back of a job. And that's what we changed in this, in the laboratory. I promised the SO13 team that if they got exhibits in by 8 a.m. one morning, we would get all results back, and that included the DNA profiling, within 24 hours. And that process continued. And I managed to get a team of scientists that promised to basically work at least 12-hour shifts, normally longer, and the lab would therefore work 24 hours a day, and we continued that, working seven days a week until the back was broken. And I was doing 16, 18 hour days. So it changed, it changed the way of um, sort of working. Dr. Shep, if I can just uh, bring you in here, because you were on your jollies at the time of 7-7. Seven, seven. <laughs> well, yes, I was. I was actually on the Isle of Man 7-7. Seven, seven. I mean, I'd looked after the sort of management of the pathology of London for a long time, but I was over then on the Isle of Man. I mean, as always, you know, the, the news comes in when you're involved in this sort of game, the, you know, your ears prick up and you immediately hear what's going on. I, I, I knew that my colleague of mine was going to be technically in charge, uh, but I was just checking up and finding out that something we'd recently put in place was a new temporary mortuary facility was being set up at the Honourable Artillery Company. Uh, and that was very fortuitous because it really was a brand new plan, brand new facility that was put up and it came into its use at exactly the right moment because we had planned for all sorts of crimes in London, bombings in London, based, as you say, Steve, on, on, on the IRA bombing technique. And suddenly we had four separate scenes, you know, an, an incredibly complex thing to work because normally it was one scene, one bomb, we could manage it all together. Now we had to have four, and we, we were lucky to have this fantastic facility. Um, just out of interest, Elton John had used the tent for a party the week before, but I mean, that was, uh, <laughs> uh, that was that, that it was a huge tent that was put up, a big, big tent, and it was, it, it really, pathologically, it meant we could do a much better job than struggling in the facilities that we had before, so that was good. Steve, just coming back to the two weeks you spent at Edgware Road there, essentially isolated from everyone above on the streets. Were you getting any indication as to what the immediate aftermath was in London over that two-week period? How isolated were you down there with your colleague? It, it really was like a bubble. It, it, was, it was just really weird because the, the, the cordons around where we were were, were huge. Um, so we couldn't even see traffic. We couldn't see other people. Um, so you'd get like text messages from friends, family, you'd see a bit on the news, but it, it, that felt like a different world. It, where we were was just just absolute still quiet. Um, it, yeah, it, it was weird. And it, and it only really became real, I think, the second Sunday we were there and uh, families of the people that died at Edgware Road came down. Um, we stopped our work and we, and we, and we stood to one side um, and just and just watched them as they came down and laid flowers, and that was when it really became real. Um, when you when you do the job that we we, we were doing, you I wouldn't describe us as robots, but you're professional. You just get on with it. Um, but when you're then seeing those that are affected by it, that 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 to me certainly did make it harder, um, and, and I'd say a lot a lot more real. It's an interesting point touching on the effect you have to sort of bury that whilst you're working through to remain professional. So Ray, when you and your team are going through all the forensics on there, is there anything in the back of your mind thinking, what if there's a further attack? 
how do you think about the victims these items belong to, or are you trying to keep it as professional and separate yourself from it as much as you, you can? You keep it as professional as you can, but obviously the um, staff would have known that about the people that have you know, been attacked. They would have seen it on the news. Obviously, there's some emotions there. Fortunately, I had a very good governor at that time. He made sure all the scientific staff, he kept an eye on them, making sure you know they were up to it and physically okay, mentally okay. Um, so, you know, you know this, but you just keep it professionally, basically, and get, and get on with the job that you're paid to do. Okay. Going back to the temporary mortuary then, Dr. Shepherd. Firstly, before we come on to one thing I want to talk about there, can you give us an indication as to how different it is doing the standard post-mortem, where there's one victim on, on the table, and you're, doing, you're going through the process as you normally would? Versus not only a mass fatality, but a mass fatality, like Steve says, where the bomber is, is literally almost being scooped into a bag to be processed at the lab. How difficult is that to work, and what are the major differences that you need to bring into that? Oh, well, it, it, there's a, a whole series of, of differences. When we're, do, when we're dealing with sudden deaths or suspicious deaths, we normally know who the person is. When we're dealing with mass fatalities like that, one of the main functions is to establish who that person is. Uh, and remember, somewhere in the background, there's the anti-mortem team, the, the relatives team at Scotland Yard is taking information from thousands, tens of thousands of people are phoning up like uh, you know, someone you said, you know, I've got a photograph, I've got this, someone's missing, someone's not being seen. All of this information, all this anti-mortem data is feeding in. We're documenting, we use Interpol forms, uh, uh, so this, this can work internationally. So if we have someone from France or Germany or Russia or Greece, the same form is used in that country to fill in the anti-mortem details so we can work across boundaries. So we're looking incredibly carefully at clothing, at jewellery, at items in wallets, at, at all of these things, trying to help and find things that another team is going to do that cross-match, linking the anti-mortem data with the post-mortem data. And you have to be really, really careful with things that are movable, things that can be dislodged, and particularly in London, I remember it very clearly, uh, we found on someone a wallet. Credit cards, you know, my identification's in my wallet. All my credit cards, my name, photograph, photo ID, all this stuff is in my wallet. And there was this wallet on this particular body. But it wasn't that person. And because during the explosion, that particular bit of movable information had been blown from one person on the pattern. So we have to be really careful of that but and then then having done that we can then move on to establishing what's happened what's been found the exhibits for the for ray for his teams and i remember in this case blue bits of plastic with crucial bits of information x-raying then doing a postmortem to establish why someone has actually died as a result of this you may think it's pretty obvious but actually we need to know more details than just killed in a bomb blast so all of these things are there. It's a very long, complex, performed by teams. We have teams of police officers, we have scribes, we have photographers, we have radiologists, we usually have one or two pathologists. So a big team is managing this in each case, and sterile, because what we can't have is information, forensic information from one body being transmitted accidentally to another, particularly in a situation like this where we've got four separate scenes. So it's complex, it's difficult, it's intense, and you say you have to drop into this professional mode, focus, keep focused, and then make sure your team has got enough rest 
and relaxation and release to be able to go and do it all again and again and again. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Rick, can you talk to me about identifying the bombers, what that process was like, and how you achieved confirmation of that? Can I just say one thing just before Ray goes Just put, use your mic, Steve. So, so at the scene, so this is before it got to Ray, um, we, we were searching, what, what you see when a bomb goes off on a train, um, however many yards back, is a crater. In, if you go down the underground, there were these little grey stones and we could see the crater. And inside the crater, we found a credit card with the name of Mohammed Sadiq Khan in it. Um, and that was the very first time. Um, so I, I didn't realize this until I joined the anti-terrorist branch and we're dealing with it. The first ever suicide bombers, UK ones, were in, in Israel, um, Hanik and I can't remember the name. And one of them blew himself up and the other one didn't. He left his passport behind. I was like, oh, why would you leave your passport behind? And, and the reason is that they have to be identified if they're gonna, if they're gonna enter their heaven. Um, so what the bombers were doing, they were throwing down their identification when the bombs went off. So that's, that was the very first indication of who they were. And that's the big difference with the IRA bombings. They were trying to hide their identity, you know, um, whereas the suicide bombers, um, which Steve said were the first in this country, they didn't hide their identity at all. In fact, they kept their identity with them and personal items with them, things like toothbrushes, aftershave, you know, all their credit cards, their gym membership cards, that was kept with them. So that was obviously the first stage of the identification. We then went through several other series of um, um, identifications, such as Tamweir. His pro DNA profile was actually on the database. So the um, body samples that Dick would have passed onto the laboratory DNA profile there were identified as Tamweir through the DNA database. Jermaine Lindsay, we had a DNA profile, and that was compared to a razor that was taken from his home address. So that identified Lindsay and Khan, as you've uh, already said, Steve, initially identified through the card, again, a DNA against his um, parents' uh, DNA samples. So how's that out of the four bombers were identified uh, scientifically? Okay. It takes a strong person to do the job you did that day, Steve, down in there, collecting the remains of the victims and the bombers. What impact has that had on you mentally? Is there anything that you may see that would trigger something and, and put you in a bad place? What was your headspace like? So this is, this is a bit weird. So I, it affected me, but in, in a way that you wouldn't think. So my friends, my daughters here, my, my family, when I got back and they knew what I was doing, I kept going asked the same question, you okay, you okay? And I, and I really, really was. And that started to worry me. It was like, well, what, why am I so okay? Is there something wrong with me that I can do this job? And, and I'm not affected by it. But then I, I did reflect on it. And it was like, well, right. So first off, what I didn't do, I didn't walk into Hendon Police College and the very next day get dropped into 7-7 and have to do that scene. I'd been through a process of when you first join the police, you get sent to every single dead body. Um, I'd been to road traffic accidents and I'd seen, I'd seen death, I'd seen blood, I'd seen everything. So your resilience, you get a build-up of resilience. So by the time you're asked to do a job like that, you can professionally get on and do it. So you're, you're, not, you're not affected by it. But what I, what I would say is that that's, that's me and I can only speak for me. So the police at the time, I think, were pretty poor when it comes to our 
um, mental health and mental well-being. They put us in a room. We were all blokes. Does anybody need counselling? And <laughs> who's, who's going to put their hand up? Right, so no, nobody put their hand up. Um, and I know at least two or three people that really suffered. Um, and and that's, that's understandable. And I was lucky. Um, but there's a, there's a, this, is, this is going off in a tangent. I do apologise. But there's a, in the news at the moment, um, Matt Rattana got shot, police officer. And that's one of the last murders I investigated before I retired. And they wouldn't leave us alone, in a nice way, about counselling. Do you want it? They'll email us. They'll email us again. So the police have learned loads about people's mental health. Back then, it was just go and have a beer. That was, that was literally it. That's exactly now, what I was going to say. Yeah. At the end of the day, as long as I had a pint glass before I went to bed, <laughs> I never got stressed. And that was my way of dealing with it. We won't get into it a bit on how healthy that is in this <laughs> talk. We'll leave that for another time. Dick, do you want to just tell me about the, this family reception centre that was mm. created at the temporary mortuary? Because I know when I spoke to you in preparation for this, that was really interesting sort of tale. It, it was a major part of the, the design for the new temporary mortuary facility. It was one of the problems. I mean, I'm thinking back Clapham, Marchioness, I mean, a number of mass disasters I've been involved in. You know, the facilities for the family in those situations have been utterly appalling. There really has been nothing to allow the family time and space. And it's one thing we deliberately built into the temporary mortuary facility was a really good space for families to give them time and space to get used to it, to be with, and if necessary, if they wanted to, to move to see their relative. They didn't have to, but it was time to spend close to, nearby, have prayers if you wanted them, just sit and talk as a family. They had a separate, completely separate entrance to this facility that the police obviously were guarding outside. So they would come in, they wouldn't see any, they could see the tent, but they wouldn't see anything about what we were doing. They were kept totally separate. And I think that was one I, I don't take no credit for. This was Red Cross, this was St. John's Ambulance, this was the, 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 the caring Samaritans. All these people helped to design this. And I hope, I really do hope that it helped these families rather than being presented with it. There you are, now you've got to go to the undertakers and see them you know, in, the, in their chapel of rest. It gave them that time. And I know that many families, sometimes it does take days for people to come in, to think, to come back, to go again. And they had that time facility. It's one of the things I'm most proud of, and I'm, I'm proud of the whole facility, because it worked and it was good, and it managed something we'd never even thought of. But, you know, for the families, you know, once again, this is, this is so important to have the time and the space. So I'm, I'm very proud of that. We'll talk on to the explosives used in 7-7. So the bomb factory was identified a few days after 7-7, and it was in Burley, literally around the corner from my house in Leeds. That's where my involvement stopped, to confirm. <laughs> Ray, do you want to talk to me about, first of all, how the bomb factory was identified, and then after that, a little bit about the the makeup and the construction of those devices? Well, the bomb factory was identified through intelligence from the police. Um, um, and as you say, it was in Burley and Leeds. Um, and when, as soon as you saw photographs of the actual bomb factory, you knew that it had been uh, some sort of bomb factory there. For example, the paint on all the windows was blistered. Because of the strong nature of the hydrogen peroxide used in the bonds, that blistered all the paint. All the vegetation outside the windows had, had died. Inside, it was just a basic tip. 
there was well over a thousand exhibits taken from that. As I say, they don't hide their identity, and they certainly don't with a bomb factory. They just leave it as they left it, basically, and walked out. So everything was there for us. So it led us into sort of uh, examining the items then. Now, we had over a thousand items. That was going to take um, time. But they were prioritised, basically, quick wins. What are quick wins with regards to DNA? They're things like drink items, where people take a drink from a can or a straw that leaves saliva there, you can get DNA. Cigarette ends, another easy win. Can be processed very, very quickly, results coming through. Secondly, uh, the evidentially um, exhibits, the exhibits that go up to make the bomb, get DNA profiles from those. So then you start building up who's sort of profile, who's been in that house. Anti-terrorism investigations forensically are different from, say, a murder investigation where you're normally looking for one, most two perpetrators. There you're not only looking for the people that carried out the attacks, you're looking for the people that facilitated that attacks, either through finance, through getting materials to, that you used in the bombs, and um, financing, um, sort of intelligence, how they made the bomb up, the training, all of those people need to be identified in this. And that was stressed to, to us very importantly. You know, just because we found a DNA profile that didn't match any of the uh, four bombers didn't mean it wasn't important. So we were, we were covering that sort of angle as well. Are you able, in layman's terms, to briefly explain to myself and the audience how exactly that homemade device was yeah. set up to detonate? The device consisted of a plastic five litre container. Um, inside that would be the main charge. Now the main charge in the 7.7 was a mixture of black pepper and hydrogen peroxide. Hydrogen peroxide at about a concentration of 60%. Now you can't buy hydrogen peroxide at that concentration. The, the maximum you can buy it at um, is 18%. Uh, so that has to be evaporated, and that's why there was so much damage to the house with the hydrogen peroxide fumes. So there's a mixture of a, a, a sort of fuel, which is the black pepper, and the um, oxidising agent, which is the hydrogen peroxide. That's the main charge. Inside that, that needs to be detonated. Inside that is put a de the detonator they used for the 7.7 and the 21.7. There's a compound called TATP, triacetone triperoxide. Now, your first lesson on bomb making, this is how you make TATP. You can buy acetone, it's nail varnish remover. So you can get that. A hydrogen peroxide, you can buy a chemist. So you've got hydrogen peroxide, nail varnish remover. If you put that in a little tray, Sprinkle a little bit of citric acid on it, as you can buy. Yeah, chemist again. Put that in the fridge. Overnight, you'll have fluffy white crystals. That is triacetone triperoxide. Now, you've got to pack that into a cardboard tube. So tap it down gently. So if it goes too hard, <laughs> you'll end up with one of Dick's Is pictures. there anyone making notes here? Because I'll just want to <laughs> For the record, please do not make a bomb, <laughs> based on what Ray has said. So the, the um, in, detonator goes into the main charge. Into that is placed um, a five volt um, light bulb with a glass remover so it exposes filament. That goes into that, wires attached, that to a nine volt battery. That will detonate the 
777 bombs, and that's how they went off. They were all wrapped in rucksacks to carry them. So that's a makeup. That's your lesson on bomb making. <laughs> I'm quite scared now, Sutton. Can I switch seats? <laughs> Let's talk then. So, Steve, after that two weeks ends down in uh, in the station there, it's your first day back home. That day happens to be 21-7. Yeah, so we literally, the train was removed on the evening of the 20th. Um, and actually, that was, that was the scariest moment for me. Um, so it was all clear. Literally the cleanest track in, in the country. Um, and the train was about to be lifted out. It was about an hour wait, and someone, someone said to me, can you just go down and sit in the train for an hour in the dark, in the tunnel? And that was, that was, that was the scariest bit for me. Yeah, I didn't like that. Um, so, so, yes, I got home. Um, I was absolutely knackered, because we'd had really long days, and being policemen, we didn't, we didn't go to bed when we'd finished the day. We'd be in the hotel drinking. So we literally had no, we had no sleep for two weeks, literally. Um, and my phone went off on the morning of the 21st and I was sort of blurry I had looked at my text message and it said there's been some more can you come in I'm like no um, so back in um, and started again um, although this time I was on the so this was this was no lot this wasn't crime scenes this was a manhunt so I was on a manhunt team leading the team um, and we had one suspect who we were looking for and they were, we had a, a north team and a south team. I was in charge of the north team. And the south team put up on it that we heard on the radio. He's out, they're following. And the next thing we know, he's been shot. And um, very quickly, it came back to us. Actually, we got the wrong man. And that was John Charles de Menzies. Um, I don't know what happened. Communication within the Metropolitan Police. The commissioner then went on the telly to say we've shot someone and it's the right person, and we're all sitting there thinking it isn't. Um, so yeah, so that 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 is my memory of twenty one seven. And Ray, you requested to keep the same major crime team that you had for seven seven for twenty one seven. Was the logic behind that to do more with their prior knowledge of seven seven, or do you just like to work with the same team? What was the thought process? Behind it was it? it was twofold. Um, basically, one, um, the forensic management team of SO thirteen were pleased with the work that the team were doing at that stage. Secondly, I knew I had the right staff on that team, so really it was to keep them. And there was one person I will name them now that I knew if I convinced her to, you know, she was basically running it up for me. Bridget March, if I knew if I could persuade Bridget to carry on and do the same with 217 as she did at 77, she would keep the rest of the team. She willingly agreed, and I kept the rest of the team. And that was, that was brilliant. So it just continued, 77 morphed into 217. Okay. So the, the device makeup for 217, that was an unsuccessful attack. I believe only the, the detonator caps fired, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, was there a big difference in the composition of the devices between 7.7 and 21.7? No, not, no, not really. Um, the main charge, instead of being black pepper, was in flat. Well, let's go... F um, they, were, they were similar devices, but the devices didn't go off. But the crucial stage of that bomb-making device is the percentage of hydrogen peroxide in the main charge. If that is not high enough, those devices will not explode. And that's probably why uh, 217 
explosive didn't explode. Now, the attempted bombers, for better cause of a word, denied that these bombs were yeah. meant to explode. It was an elaborate practical joke, hence nothing happened. And it's important that we figure out how you came to the conclusion, and this is in a little bit where we show you this video, um, a device that Ray ended up making with his team. Uh, what, can I what, just go through it? Of course you can, the, yeah. The, the, on the 15th of December 2005, um, I was called to a meeting, 6 o'clock at Scotland Yard. I must admit, we'd been working since July on this, and we'd got a hell of a lot of results out, a hell of a lot of good work. I must admit, I thought I was going to go into a little drinky poos with canaps. <laughs> but instead, I walked into a case conference where the SIO was there, the investigation team were there. I don't know if you were there, Steve. Um, the forensic management team were there. The Treasury Council, Mr Sweeney was there. Um, his junior, Max Hill, and Alison Morgan. The CPS were there, and the Forensic Explosives Laboratory, and me. So we were around this table. And it came to the discussion of the 21-7 bombings. Um, Mr Sweeney asking the Forensic Explosives, what was the composition of the 21-7 devices? And unfortunately, the Forensic Explosives Laboratory couldn't answer that question. Now, we knew that the, um, they were being charged with conspiracy to murder. But if we couldn't prove that the device that they were carrying was potentially viable, we couldn't prove that charge. We knew their defence was going to be that it was all meant to be a hoax, that they were going to de uh, uh, detonate these devices. A load of flour would go up in the air. Everybody would get covered with flour, and we'd all walk away laughing. You know, um, So... If they didn't know the composition of the device, we couldn't prove they were viable. So I come out of that meeting with one uh, thing to do. Basically, learn from science everything I could about those devices with a view of producing a regular device and testing that device. So... Well, the information you sent me regarding all the, like the, the X-ray diffraction analysis... Um, with the carbohydrates and stuff, if you want to go into that. Yeah. I then held a meeting with people that, you know, I, I trusted that could do decent, decent analytical science. Whenever I got an um, inquiry about any vegetable material, my first thing was go to Kew Gardens. They're the experts. So, you know, I contacted Kew Gardens. Also, there was a person I was working with from the University of Reading. Um, so I contacted him. We set up a meeting with a view of seeing how we could sort of develop an analytical strategy to um, um, work out what these devices consist of. We held a meeting, we agreed a strategy, and basically from X-ray diffraction analysis we showed that carbohydrate um, was a wheat-based flour. Um, then from a thing called carbon and lead isotope analysis, we identified that wheat-based flour as Fiduku chapati flour. We collected every wheat-based flour within the M25 and analysed them and got it down to Fiduku chapati flour, which is actually the stuff that was found in the bomb factory. Um, measurement at Kazuin level showed there was four kilograms of the flour in each five-kilogram device. And the measurement and tin and sodium levels, which were from the peroxides they were used as stabilisers, said there was 21 litres of peroxide, which was made up from f over 400 litres, evaporated it down 
to 21 litres. That increased the strength from 18 up to around 62%. So from that, we were able to make a device that replicated the 21.7 device. Was there any pushback with you guys actually making that device? Were there any concerns over replicating that device? No. Um, both the Defence and the Prosecution Council were invited to see the um, future detonation of that device. You know, both sides wanted to sort of prove. Obviously, the Defence wanted to show it wasn't viable. The prosecution was seeing whether or not it was viable. Steve, what do you think the lasting impact of the London bombings has been? How do we look back on them and how has it changed the way we approach terrorism in these modern times? It's, it's, it's changed beyond recognition. So when I first joined the terrorist branch in 2002, there were 70 detectives. When I left in 2005, I left just after the bombings. 1,500 or something like that. Um, so, it, yeah, it, it changed the game completely from what the Irish did. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying the, 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 the Irish terrorists were awful people, but they played under slightly different rules than, than those that came afterwards. Um, and it, it's, it's changed it in so many ways. So in, in terms of the intelligence that, that, that is put into it now, it's, it's, it's far more sophisticated in order to catch them. There are more detectives. Everybody, into, like so, what Dick was saying. Everybody's f better prepared now. You'll see them on the news. You'll see that they do these terrorists, where all the part, all the partner agencies, the fire brigade, the ambulance service, they all join in. I think we're all we're all much better prepared now. Um, touch wood that it, it, it won't happen again. But as I said right, uh, early on, we were flying by the seat of our pants when we dealt with this one because we were completely unprepared. And if it was to happen again we would be better prepared for it next time, undoubtedly. Dick, does that apply as well for that initial temporary mortuary that came in just to prepare in case something happens a couple of days later, it does happen? How's the preparation for that now since that event? Well, it, the, the problem with the, the temporary mortuary was, although it was used within days of it in a sense becoming viable and, and the, the plans being published, uh, it does depend on people practising people meeting together and practicing and bringing the temporary mortuary facility, getting the tent back off Elton John and yeah, putting it up again. So it, it is having those things and putting them together, but it's expensive. And then you know, the cost of these exercises is expensive. Uh, and in terms of the forensic pathologists, it's a small resource. People don't like coming and spending time away from their work because that is missing out on other things. There is a real struggle to keep us all experienced and skilled and ready to manage it. So, you know, having dealt with many mass disasters in my career, each time you learn and you forget, and you learn and you forget. And my worry now is that we are in the forgetting thing. You know, the Manchester Arena bombing that I had a peripheral review role in looking at. Once again, you know, some of the things my colleagues there did a brilliant job in that, but I could see that they were learning things that I knew we needed, you know, we should have. They should have been a bit faster and ahead of the game. No, nothing major, but things like that. We need to practice, but practice costs money, costs time, and costs facilities. Uh, and we need to keep that up because you know, we have to know how to manage it. And this one was completely different. We never had four 
four anti-terrorist explosions at one time, what's the next one? How is it going to be different the next time? Because each one, we try and think, we try and plan, we try and work it out, but it's always not quite what you expect. We'll have to leave it there, gentlemen. Thank you all for coming, and I hope you enjoyed the chat. Thank you. been listening to Crime Conversations, recorded live at CrimeCon, partnered by CBS Reality. For more information on future CrimeCon events, visit crimecon.co.uk.